holy name. You know, sometimes I don't think we recognize when we said that passage the incredible understanding that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's how great our God is. Amen. Bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. We ask that you were turning your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, You are great God, O Lord. First Timothy six, six through seven. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word? But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. This morning in the time that we have together, we're going to speak from the subject of godliness and contentment is great gain. I think we first need to understand that contentment is one of the most distinguishing traits of a godly Christian. Because a godly Christian has their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength focused on God rather than the positions, rather than the power, rather than the possessions they may have in this life. William Hendrickson once said, the truly godly person is not interested in becoming rich because he or she possesses inner resources which furnish riches that are far beyond which we could ever find on this earth. When Paul renders this word contentment, he's actually speaking about sufficiency. And we see that clearly in 2 Corinthians 9 and 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times. You may abound in every good work. So we recognize even further down in 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. When Paul is asking God to take the throne out of his flesh, what does God say to him? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So we don't need to continue to pursue our own power. If we are in Christ and Christ is in us, then we are powered by his spirit. It goes on here. 
And it says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So what does that tell us, Pastor? That tells us that a contented person, a person that has contentment, will always experience sufficiency because God will always provide for their needs through his grace and his mercy in every circumstance. Never have I seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed begging bread. Because if you truly believe God and you believe that he will meet all of your needs, material and spiritual in every circumstance, then you understand that he does everything for your good. That is why Paul can say here to his son in the ministry, Timothy, without fear of being contradicted, godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, a godly person who is content has found something that a greedy person and an envious person and a discontented person will never find. They, what have they found, Pastor? They have found satisfaction that places their soul at rest. Now, I know in the times that we live in, many associate contentment with possessions, with money. But there are other areas of life that we also need to be contented in. And when we recognize that we need to be contented with our position in the church, our position in society, and we also need to be contented when it comes to the power that gives us life in the life that we lead for Christ. But also, commitment demands that we never find ourselves being discontented. If we look at how the first sin came together in the history of humanity, we see that temptation brought Eve to discontentment. God had provided everything from Adam and Eve beyond what they could ever imagine. God had made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Everything that was pleasing to the eye and good for food. But God only withheld one tree from Adam and Eve to test their obedience. And then what happens? Satan uses that one tree to tempt Eve. And how does he do it? By sowing seeds of discontentment in her heart. He questions the goodness and the graciousness of God. He says... You know, did he really tell you you couldn't eat from this tree? Do you recognize the reason he doesn't want you to eat from this tree? Because you will gain knowledge and you will know the same as him? So he supplanted Eve with doubt. That is exactly what discontentment is. It's the very questioning of the goodness and the graciousness of the God that we serve. He tried the same thing with Jesus in the wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights. He tried to make Jesus discontent because of his lack of food, his lack of water. He tried to attract him by saying, uh, digging into the fact that he might have a covenant spirit that he could give him a position. He could give him power over all the kingdoms of the world. 
And you know, a person who supplants discontentment is a person who is also filled with discontentment. Satan was filled with discontentment. Look at Isaiah 14, 13 through 15. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Right here is a veiled reference to Satan, and it shows that his downfall was because of his incredible discontentment. Satan's willingness or unwillingness to accept God's ordained position for him in the hierarchy of angels should teach us something about discontentment. I want to say to you this morning that discontentment is one of the most satanic of all sins. And it teaches us to indulge in rebellion against God, just as Satan did. Let us pray. How great you are, O God, name above all names. There's none besides you. There's none like you. Lord, give us the ability to recognize that godliness with contentment is great gain. Let us be contented with the possessions that you have graciously allowed us to have. Let us be contented with the position in the church and the position in society that you have given us. And Lord, let us be contented to rely on your power and not to seek our own power. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus and all God's children said, amen. All through the Bible, contentment with one's possessions is always examined, always given a prohibition against covetedness. I mean, we can start with Exodus 20, 13 through 17. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. And Jesus strikes a chord of this even more extensively when he gives you the simple principle, you cannot serve God and money. And later on, what happens in Luke 12 and 15, the word tells us, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And why does it tell us to be on our guard against all kinds of greed? A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's a double warning. Galatians 6, 9 through 10. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of God. Paul takes it further. He gives us a sterner warning in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 10. Now, this is really the baseline for contentment. 
Now, anyone that has more than this should be incredibly exuberant over the grace that God has shown in their life. Look what it says. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So that's the baseline. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Don't get that twisted. He's not saying that money in and of itself is evil. I don't believe, I think the Bible teaches God doesn't care what you possess as long as it does not possess you. But look what he says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There's certain evils you can't get into if you can't finance it. If you don't have enough money to get into some things. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The writer of Hebrews frames his ammunition in a form of encouragement. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We clearly see here in the scriptures, and you know, people will challenge me, God, you go through a lot of scriptures. Let me tell you something. A pastor can give you one or two things. He can give you the word of God, or he can give you his opinion. Which one is going to be more beneficial for you? We see clearly in scripture, it warns us of the dangers of discontentment, and it also encourages us to pursue uh, contentment on the base of what God has already provided for us, on the basis of God's promises to us. Romans 15 and 4, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. That means everything that we see in the Old Testament is written for our instruction that we might not repeat the same mistakes that they did, that we might not be as rebellious as they were, that we might be more faithful, that we might see, you know, an example that we don't have to experience ourselves. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. With this truth in mind, we need to give careful heed to the result of having a, covet, uh, a spirit that is very covetedness. Remember, God's attitude toward discontentment has not changed. He still speaks to us about the fact that it is incredibly dangerous. I think John makes it clear in his third gospel when he tells us that there is a, when you have a craving for possessions, it is being in love with the world. Yes. 
and we have three enemies, the world, our flesh, and the devil. But contentment is absolutely vital to our spiritual health. So what can we do, Pastor, to pursue an attitude of being content with what we have? Well, we need to take some steps. Just like in building any character trait, we need to renew our mind by memorizing and meditating on two passages of Scripture. Look at Luke 12, 13 through 21. Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man... Who made me a judge and arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable saying this. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But look what God says to him. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. So where do we need to make our investments? In the things of God or in ourselves? Keep in mind, the Holy Spirit can only work in a lasting and fundamental way heart that has changed and has made a commitment through earnest prayer. Look what David said in Psalm 119, 36 and 40. Speaking to the Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes for looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, they give me life. Prayer, meditation on scripture, is essential in developing contentment about our possessions. To understand the true value of what God wants us to really value. David declares in Psalm 19 that the word of God is what? More precious than gold. Solomon tells us that wisdom and application of God's principle are more profitable than silver or gold or precious jewels. All these statements tell us to value God's word, and that is what should be truly important in our life. Service to God, service to humanity is really the only motivation acceptable to God 
in our vocation, whatever it might be. We are to avoid selfish ambition and we are to look to see how we can serve God wherever he has us placed. In fact, when it comes to secular employment, I think Colossians gives us an incredible understanding of who we should be in the secular world as a Christian working in the secular world. Colossians 3, 23 through 25. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Regardless of who, you may work for Lily, but you're not working for Eli Lily, you're working for our great God and you happen to be employed by Eli Lily. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Why should I do this, Pastor? He says it, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You may never get that promotion on your job. You might never get that extra money in your 401k. But if you work heartily unto the Lord, you will receive every dime of your inheritance in heaven. Then he comes back and he says, you are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. So even when we are treated unfairly, the Bible teaches us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. That God has the world's greatest DVR and he has recorded everything. And he shows no partiality, and he will deal with that. And if you take the, the overview in your life that everything is a result of God's grace and everything that you have or anyone has is a result of God's grace, then you can recognize as they dedicated the temple why they were able to say these words in First Chronicles 29, 11 through 12. Everything in the heavens and the earth are yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you for being in control of all things. Blessings and honor come from you alone. For you are the ruler of all mankind. Your hand controls power and might. And it is at your discretion that men are made great and given strength. We can rely on a holy God if we serve him to make us strong to take care of us. Deuteronomy 8, 18 through 20. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord made to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So if you seek to make yourself strong, you seek to make your own self prosperous, you will end up destroying yourself. Because really you're worshiping other gods. 
you're putting people or things or a job or a bank account in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must have humility toward God, toward possessions, understanding that God is sovereign and it is his good pleasure to see fit to give more wealth and more possessions to others. And consequently, we are not to envy those. You know, God is always looking for that one that is going to be a viable conduit that if he gives to you, you will also give to others. He will trust you to take what you need to make sure you you can take care of your family and a rainy day, but then access you give that others might cover their rainy days. Then he knows he can trust you. You know, Jesus taught a parable about the workers in the vineyard, and he described a situation where it started in the beginning of the day, and he hired some people, and they worked all day. And then at noontime, he went out, and he hired some more people, and then they worked from noon to the end of the day. And then at the end of the day, maybe two hours left in the shift, he hires two more or other people. They come in, and they work two hours to the end of the shift. And then when it's time to get paid, he pays them all the same wage. Those who had been in the sun all day were envious and they came and they challenged him and he says these words, do I not have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you envious of me because I'm generous? You see, Jesus will bless those with wealth and abundance and possessions, but with privilege comes responsibilities as well. Luke 12, 48 and B. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted, much more will be demanded. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future that they may take hold of which is truly life. What does Jesus tell us? He tells us, build your treasures not on earth but in heaven where thieves can't break in and moths can't destroy and rust can't corrode. Same concept here. It's important for us to recognize that contentment is blessed when we learn to share with others in need. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves 
a cheerful giver. This is predicated on the fact that we have had a heart change. You know, many people think this eradicates the tithe. This, you know, everything that you see as an example in the New Testament goes far beyond the tithe. But what it says here is that my heart has been changed by the gratitude that I have for a great God, and that's going to be my baseline. So if I want to see more, I will sow more. But again, I don't give to bribe God. It's not a Holy Ghost lottery here. And it goes on to look look at the promise he gives us after this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's saying he's going to keep the flow constant and consistent because you have been faithful. And even in those times you might not be able to be as faithful as you like, if you build up a foundation of faithfulness, then God is able to take you through those times where you find yourself in lack. I'm not telling you what I heard. I'm telling you what I know. He can do it. We also need to find contentment with position. That's a battle in many of the Christians' life, not just regarding possessions, but also they have a battle when they consider their position in the body of Christ or their position in society. There's a passage here in, look at, I think it's 1 John, 3 John, 3 John 1, 9 through 10. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Now, in two verses, he's given us everything we ever need to know about Diophanes, right? He says he loves to be first. He refuses to welcome apostles in the church who could hold him accountable. He maliciously gossips about other men of God. He withholds hospitality. He requires others to follow his poor example, and when they won't follow his poor example, he puts them out the church. He was jealous of the ministry of the apostles, and he refused to allow them in the church because he didn't want to be held accountable, so he slandered them. He was always self-seeking. We need to recognize that the pastorate is no place for power, 
hungry, jealous, slanderous man who reject God's word. Rather, this is just the opposite of what the Bible calls a pastor to be. They must be what? Hospitable. They must love what is good. They must be self-controlled. They must be upright, holy, and disciplined. They must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that is being taught through the Bible. Paul tells us in Romans 12 and 3, For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I said to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned to them. Contentment lies not in being first, but it lies in being faithful. Faithful to the function that God has called us into the body of Christ. We all have different gifts, all according to the grace that we have been given. They're not only different gifts, they are different capacities within those gifts. You see that in the parable of the talents. One servant is given five talents, another is given two, and the third one is only given one. Notice that they were only given the amount of talents that matched their capacity to reproduce. To whom much is given, much is required. The servant trusted with two talents, reproduced two. The one trusted with five, reproduced five. The one trusted with one was untrustworthy. He buried his, right? None of it was earned. It was all given through God's grace and his love. So God has a right in each and every one of our lives to construct it in the way that he would like. Romans 9.21, has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another of dishonorable use? You see, when you come to this understanding that everything belongs to God, your possessions, all your property, all your promises, all your gifts, then you are willing to be used of God in every way. So how do I find contentment in this, Lord? Number one, I realize that where I am is not by chance and it's not by the favor or the disfavor of other people, but by the decision of an all-wise, all-loving, sovereign God who has plans for my life, plans to prosper me and not to harm me, plans to give me hope in the future. And he has the same for you. Second, I realize wherever I am and whatever I have, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But God is gracious. Paul says, although I am the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the same man that was killing Christians. In fact, killing Christians on the same day and on the same road that he was converted. We all need to understand that God has prepared us in advance for good works. And we need to surrender to the Holy Spirit so that in this vocation 
or really a pastorate is not a vocation, it's a calling, but in any vocation we find ourselves in that we work as unto the Lord. And that this doesn't mean that being content is incompatible with godly ambition. We should aspire to be better at what we're doing so that we can serve God even the more. But as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24, were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. Parenthetically, he says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who called you in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man to the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant to Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of man. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let them remain with God. It says even in that situation, God has given you the total freedom in Christ. And if you can avail yourself to get out of that servitude, then do so. But never fear that you are second class in any of the benefits or the inheritance that God has for you. Psalm 75, 6 through 7. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings down, he exalts another. Lastly, we have to be content with the power that God gives us to operate in this life. We live in a sin-cursed world. All you need to do is turn on TV for 15 minutes. We live in a world where this creation is being subjected to the frustration of sin and sometimes it's overwhelming, it's an overwhelming circumstance in our life. But as Christians, we must believe that in all circumstances, in all trials, in all tribulations, in all disappointments, in all discouragements, in all dangers seen and unseen, that we are covered through the providence of the wise and the will and the loving and powerful God who teaches us through his word, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things don't feel good, but all things work together for good. You know, my grandmother was an incredible cake baker. And you know, she used to get in there on Sunday or really Saturday because they didn't do any cooking on Sunday. And she started make a couple of cakes and stuff. And you know, you sit around there hoping that you might be able to take the beaters and lick them. So I'm sitting in there and I'm thinking, you know, this old lady's got a real racket going here. She controls my eating icing. And I just don't think that's fair. I think I should have more involvement with this. So she laid out the ingredients on one Saturday morning of everything that was going to go in there. And I said, I'm going to go in there myself and get me, you know, I know what, she, I see what she got in there. I'm going to make the taste myself. So I go in there and I 
put my finger in there and I taste sugar, and man, it was delicious. And I had a little milk, and it wasn't as good, but it was still, you know, cream, more cream than anything. But then I put my finger in baking soda, and it was like my whole head swole up. And I'm thinking, how in the world could this ingredient go in this cake and then come out so delicious in a couple of hours after it's been put in the stove under 300 to 400 degree heat? Well, that's the way life is. All the different ingredients go into life, but they all have to be stirred in, mixed up, go through the fire, and then the ultimate result is good. Not piece by piece. Don't get caught up in that. If you trust God and you believe that he loves you and that he's your father and everything he does is for your benefit long term, then just take the hit and trust that at the end of it, it's going to come out good. Psalm 33, 10 and 12. The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his heritage. We must remember Even though God's provision doesn't always appear favorable toward his children, believe me, it is always favorable. Isaiah says it this way, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Life is challenging, and we find ourselves often perplexed, frustrated, dealing with trials and tribulations, dealing with our physical limitations, dealing with chronic illnesses, dealing with nagging injuries, being on injured reserve, as our brother Warren Manns is this morning. But we know that God is always working for our good. Psalm 73, 12 through 26 says this, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. Is that not what we see all the time? People living completely wicked lives And from our perspective here, they're profitable and being uh, more prosperous, right? Now look at how we feel. And in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You made them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept 
away by utter terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. But my soul was embittered when I was pricked in the heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, one of the most dangerous things I think can ever come out of your mouth is I'm angry at God. You know, as a pastor, I hear it all the time, and it stuns me every time I hear it. Some disappointment, a loved one has died. Some disappointment, some financial uh, travesty has happened. Some disappointment, a job has been lost. And they're angry at God. And I try to comfort them, but then I tell them, the truth without a chaser. How can you afford to be angry with the only person who can help you out of this situation? That makes absolutely no sense. You need to repent of that anger. You can share with the Lord vividly your disappointment in what is happening and pray for him to intervene in it, to change it, to come to your rescue. But don't ever become brutish with the creator of life itself. The one that you would either spend eternity with after you walk through the portal of death or you will spend eternity away from after you walk through the portal of death. Lastly, God is all over and all through everyone who belongs to his son, Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of our most difficult time, God is there. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, I must go on boasting, though, the, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ. He's speaking of himself in the third person here. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Wherein the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into Paradise. He's saying he's in heaven, right? Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man can't, may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one thinks more of me than he sees in me and hears from me. 
so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. If we can, if we can bring trials, tribulations, disappointments down to the mere phrase harassment, that's all it is. Because our sovereign God is going to bring us out of it. It's just harassment. Harassment to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. We are, as, we are never as strong as we are when we throw up our hands in utter disgust and surrender. That's, have you ever noticed that's when God works? When you just say, I'm through with this. Whatever happens, happens. That's, you know, that's bad surrender, but that's surrender. You come to the end of yourself. And when you come to the end of yourself, that's when your help comes. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why is he able to say this? Because now he recognizes when I am weak, I am strong. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask you to make us utter weaklings that we might be the strongest among those in your body so that we ultimately or utterly depend on you for everything. Whether we recognize it or not, we depend on you for our next breath. So we thank you for your great provision and for your incredible faithfulness toward us even when we are not faithful. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.